newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis each week on how the news media has been performing in previous days, and we hope that you will uh, enjoy listening to some of our analyses about this. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large at the Times Union, here with my colleagues, Dr. Alan Chartok, CEO of Northeast Public Radio, political scientist and commentator, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, who teaches at the University of Albany nowadays, and Judy Patrick, a longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady and now vice president of the New York Press Association. Thank you all for joining us. So, We'll be talking today about media performance on election night, post-election, and maybe if there are some lessons that the news media might take uh, in these early post-election days, because there was a lot that went on. So uh, let me talk to Dr. Shartok first, being please, the man with please. most expertise. Please, please. What were you paying attention to on election night, Alan, and how did you think the media performed that night? Well, you know, it's very hard to disassociate politics from what, you know, the media was doing during this election. We all know that. This is a show, as I have often tried to point out to you and the others, Rex, about media and not about politics. Uh, Nevertheless, (laughs) one of the things that came out as soon as they began to do exit polling. Now, they they don't tell you who won, but they tell you the issues. And the issues, which have not been covered well by the press, in my mind, is the question of economics versus the pandemic. And as soon as they said that the people coming out of the exit polls were more concerned with economics and the pandemic was the third, I forget the second, I said, oh, this is good for the Republicans and for Trump. Here's the point. The media needs to take each of these utterances and tell us what they mean, because if they don't, how do we know? Mm. Rosemary, what was your election night response? I hear what Alan's saying. I guess I have a different response. I um, was impressed that they kept saying this is going to take a long time. Be patient. There's nothing wrong. I'm talking television coverage now, of course, because newspapers don't come out on election night. I also was impressed that they kept saying candidates may say, declare anything. It doesn't mean anything legally. I was impressed with that. That two stations, CNN and MSNBC, do that thing with the numbers and the magic wall and I'm sorry, John King and Steve Kornacki give me a headache. They talk way too fast and throw all these numbers. I'm impressed with their breadth of historical and demographic knowledge, but it's just so much. I guess that was the fill-in on a night when there weren't that many declarations. I think pollsters were woefully off. Almost so that the future of political polling is now up in the air. I think we have to ask a lot of questions. And I think that the reporting also points out some real disparities and maybe changes, I don't know, in our political science thinking 
Uh, one thing, for example, was we reported a lot on turnout, which was huge, historic. In fact, just below 70%, it turns out. And the common thinking had been that that would mean, of course, it had to be Democrats who had never voted. And now here they are, and we're going to see more for Biden. That did not happen. And, of course, election night is too soon to begin doing this long-range analysis. But the coverage in the next few weeks seems to be pretty clear to me where we got to go. I think there's a lot for us to be chewing on as the uh, weeks come. So, Judy, what are you thinking? So I thought it was incredibly exasperating. I thought that it focused way too much on the horse race. So-and-so's ahead. We've got 2% of the vote in telling us meaningful things and then unmeaningful things. And in this breathless tone that just ratcheted up America's tension, I found myself going to websites, newspaper websites, even NPR websites, just to calm myself down because it was clear that the electronic medium, you know, they started covering this race four years ago, but in terms of election night, they started covering it at, what, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They're covering a little bit of early voting, but there's really not a lot to talk about. And I just thought this whole, again, this horse race coverage, so-and-so's ahead, this is what's happening in this obscure county in North Carolina, I did not think that added to our sense of what was happening at all. Let's say you're the executive producer of a TV show. How do you fill the airtime if you don't give people coverage of what's happening now and what you know so far? And what they want to know. I, I want to come back, if I can, for just a second to what uh, Rosemary said about John King and the equivalent on MSNBC. Yeah, Kornacki. I thought that John King stunk. I lay claim, at least, to a certain amount of brains, and I just could not understand. All he was doing was circling things. So I called my son. <laughs> he said, yeah, he's bad. you got to watch Our Nerd on MSNBC. So I did. I tuned into Granaki, and I thought he was excellent. He really answered questions definitively, and he didn't hump and pump. Rosemary, am I wrong about that? No, I think the difference is that MSNBC doesn't let... Kornacki, just go on and on. You have Rachel Maddow and Nicole Wallace asking deliberate questions. Tell me what's happening right here and what does this mean? And then he answers it. Whereas John King, I mean, I have no doubt he knows this stuff, but he's like the smartest kid in the class that everybody else hates because he's just showing off how smart he is. So I have had problems with him in past elections. It was especially bad election night because it is a horse race. We do want to know who's going to win. I think you're wrong on that, Judy. I think that's the one time when horse race reporting is justified and there was none because we knew we had to do the counting. But they could have done, for example, analysis of why were ballots not being counted in some places until after Election Day, even though they had been sitting in offices for weeks. Of course, this is a political story, but they, they didn't cover that. What does it mean that the polls were so wrong? They could have gone into some of that. There were no pollsters there talking last night. Where's Nate Silver on TV? Not last night. I'm talking election night, of course. There were no pollsters there talking about how they had gotten it so wrong. And why did we believe it would be so different this year that they made adjustments from 2016? Those are all stories that might have been covered, stories, not numbers. I don't know about that. I agree with part of what you're saying, but I think you kind of went back on yourself. The numbers are what people are looking for as election coverage comes in. People want to know what's going on. And incidentally, the difference between the cable channels and the broadcast is shown by John King and Steve Kornacki because those people are on the cable channels where the audience is more interested in the detail, I think, than the broader sweep of what the networks, the broadcast networks give you. But you can't really present pollsters explaining where they went wrong 
wrong before the numbers actually come in. That's a, yeah. But this is a very good question about the use of polls. You know, we talked about this four years ago, that the polls, of course, were in some ways off. It was the analysis of the polls that were off in the Clinton-Trump campaign. The actual numbers were pretty close in terms of the actual vote, the popular vote. But here, the polls seem to have been off this year, especially in the down-ballot races, down-ballot in the presidency, that is, the U.S. Senate campaigns, where it looked like Democrats would have a much bigger time than they did, a much better night. So my question, actually, for the panel is this. How do you get away from polling coverage when really what the news media is doing is reflecting an appetite for people to know what's going on. People want to be able to organize facts. They want to know what's happening. And how do you answer that ahead of a race? What do you have to go on? How can you avoid the polling? Shouldn't we avoid the polling? I don't know which comes first, the polling or the horse race analysis. It's easy to cover a political campaign if you just write about polls. So-and-so's up, so-and-so's down. And that's what we've seen for the last six months. There's a proliferation of polling organizations. They're all over the place. It's an easy way to cover a campaign, but it's a lazy way to cover a campaign. It's affordable, too. The other way to do it is to go out and do the canvassing and talking to people yourself. That requires travel, reporters, resources, and we're in an age of media downsizing. So it's just easier. We've outsourced reporting to pollsters. Nevertheless, I predict that, <laughs> that in four years, you're going to see pollsters just up there. They're going to take it in the neck for their malperformance here, but they will be back because the people will demand it and will respect it. You know, as a political scientist, I can only say the polling was wrong in so many cases because of the massive turnout. You know, the pollsters have to assume so many people are coming out and they make their predictions based on that. And what they didn't figure on was all the people who were going to turn up on both sides. I would argue that the connection between news organizations and polling, you had the New York Times, Siena Poll, the Washington Post, has hurt the credibility of the news organizations themselves because people say, oh, they got that wrong, and that hurts the credibility of the Times, the Washington Post, and any other organizations to decide to do a poll. You may be right, and in fact, in the future, people may say, well, you know, they got it wrong last time. We have to give it a little less respect than we did, but they'll be back. I want to go back to uh, Rosemary's very salient point, I think, about the uh, feet on the street. The great David Broder, the late dean of political reporting who worked for the Washington Post, was famous for shoe leather reporting, for going into supermarket parking lots and knocking on doors and finding out what voters were talking about and what they were thinking. And because there are fewer reporters out in the world, we're not seeing as much of that. And because we like this idea of polling, ah, it's scientific, it can give us real answers, real numbers. You know, we journalists are suckers for that. But I think one of the things that this election demonstrates to us is that people vote with their heart, that folks make emotional decisions at the ballot box. And the kind of reporting that David Broder did on the ground, talk to the people, understand what's really on people's minds, that gets you more to the heart than the phone call from pollsters coming into your home saying, who do you think you're going to vote for? Rex, you have hit it on the nail, and I would add two things to support that. One is that if you read the reporting 
everything that was done feet on the ground, it was all overwhelmingly pro-Trump. I said all along I thought it would be close. That's not because I'm some sort of genius. It's because I read stories in the New York Times and in local newspapers like Des Moines where people were enthusiastic for Trump. I mean, crazy enthusiastic. Their husbands would be deported. They still supported Trump. Their whole family was wiped out by COVID. <laughs> Didn't blame Trump. You can't read that stuff and not think that there's something there. The other thing we do is because we're so enamored of the science and the beauty of the numbers, we don't question the pollsters. I said all along, how do we know that we're not going to have the shy voter again, you know, the person who lies? And in fact, there's growing evidence that in these polls in the past election cycle, people openly lied. And why would they not? Pollsters have been as demeaned as journalists by the Trump administration. So they are in a, the same position as journalists. They're not believed, and it's okay to not tell them the truth. Yes, use polls. They're great, but we need to examine them closely and figure out if our assumptions are correct. Assumptions is a key word there, isn't it? To what extent do you think journalists, this is a bit of a uh, tough subject, to what extent does the reporting that seems to come out reflect a worldview that says, my goodness, how can people support Donald Trump because, fill in the blank, because he doesn't pay attention to facts, because he lies constantly, because he's such a despicable human being in terms of character. All of those things, I think, are factual statements. Uh, but journalists, this, this offends our sensibility as people who really value truth and who have always done reporting that purports to show, well, people of high character, uh, people who very from that get called out on our pages. We write about character, we write about deviation, and it doesn't seem to matter to a lot of voters. So I'm just wondering to what extent perhaps our own bias, therefore, affects what stories we are doing and how we actually look at what voters are telling us. Is that fair? Well, yeah, it's fair, but there's a little bit of hypocrisy in what you're saying here, Rex. I've always argued with you that there is a bleed from the editorial policy of a newspaper the worldview, the Weltanschung of the newspaper to the news pages. And you and your colleagues have always given me such crap about that, saying, no, that's not true. But it is. The New York Times was avowedly anti-Trump, and they, with great pleasure, printed those polls. And I doubt very much that they were going to question them. The one that got me was that Trump was apparently angry at Fox for what they were doing, which shows that his loyalty numbers are very low no matter what. Well, I'm asking a question about bias. I mean, if you want to say that it's from the top that this happens, I guess you could say that. But then you have to say the WAMC is full of bias because you're a lefty. And I don't think you want to concede that. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, write a reply. I have to. <laughs> First of all, I am not a lefty, and I have all the letters from the lefties to prove it. I'm just a liberal as opposed to a lefty, if I had to say that myself. But there, uh, there's no question that a newspaper has a character. And, you know, the Times Union uh, is... WAMC has a character. <laughs> God, I no, just I'm sorry, can't... I used the wrong L word, didn't I? <laughs> can I jump in here a little bit? I think journalists are very curious about the Trump voter. I think it's a real challenge for the industry to present the views of the Trump voter without bias. But one of the great challenges is if you talk to a Trump voter or a Trump supporter and try to understand where they're coming from, they often will repeat untruth. And so the challenge is, how do you put that in the newspaper and correct the untruth, but still try to get to the heart of why they're saying what they're saying? I think it's something that's going to be around with us for a while, and we need to really understand it better. 
I think going forward, we're going to have to look at some of our assumptions the same way the pollsters do. One is that if you can show a scandal, the voters will react. They don't. They don't care about Trump. Well, maybe they did about Cunningham. I don't know, in North Carolina. But malfeasance does not rule you out. The economy, we have actually known this since Clinton. We forgot it this time. The economy, the economy, the economy. I can remember a saying, Trump will do great because the economy is in great shape. And then came COVID. And we in our heads connected COVID and the virus and the economy. Trump was very careful not to do that. He always kept them separate. And I think the media was really slow to pick up on that. And yet the exit polling that you referred to earlier showed Democrats always talked about the virus and Republicans coming up. People who had voted for Trump came out of the polls talking about getting the economy up and running again. Didn't see them connected at all. We missed that. So some of it is we need to be smarter. We're treating readers and viewers as if they were in the 20th century, and they have changed. I don't think we've fully recognized it. I'm grappling with this myself. Yes, I am too. I think you have a very strong point there that the exit polls showed that the issue of health was actually the predominant issue for only 10% of voters, whereas a lot of the coverage reflected the conversation among Democratic officials that health care was the issue. And that is the issue that both the Senate and the House races for the Democrats have focused on for this and the previous election cycles. So we tended to buy that and to therefore by the polling numbers that showed that Trump couldn't possibly win on health care since he hasn't done anything about it in his term of office. But are the exit polls even accurate? Maybe the exit polls just poll people who are leaving the election site that day. Did they catch any of the polling data from people who voted by mail or voted earlier? I'm not even sure the exit polls are valid. Yeah. One thing Rex said made me think, too, going back to the idea of biases. The Democrats wanted health to be the main issue. And they talked about it a lot. And we bought into that, perhaps because our biases do tend to be more liberal and democratic. Whereas the Republicans always, always, always talked about economy. And perhaps we downplayed that because we don't like them. Is that possible? I wonder. I think that is a valid question that we need to be examining. It makes us uncomfortable, but I think it's going to have to be talked about. Rosemary, it's a very good question, but it's complicated. I mean, the guy who owns a restaurant and who wants that restaurant open, or she really wants that restaurant open. So they'll say, well, are you more concerned about the virus or the economy? And the guy's thinking, well, it's more important to get my restaurant open so I can feed my children. And that means that gets translated into the economy. And we as journalists or you as journalists have to be able to make that distinction that that's what's going on when they answer the question. It's not that they're corporate titans and they're for the economy. It's that they want, I mean, like a two-year, I want, I want. They want their businesses open. And even if they know they can't have it, they're going to say it. You know, there are two places, I think, where we can take some comfort in thinking that journalism writ large did well. One of those is in rebuffing lies that are being told, even from the White House podium. On the night that Trump declared himself the winner after 2 a.m., after the polling, and in the White House said, uh, we have won despite massive voter fraud, NBC and MSNBC both cut away to anchors saying, of course, the president is not speaking the truth. The other networks carried the whole speech for the president, but then quickly rushed in and said, of course, what he said is not true. He has not won the election. There has not been evidence of massive voter fraud. So that really is, I think, uh, to the credit 
of the network. Similarly, ahead of the election, the uh, claims of discrepancies of voter fraud, the ballots found in the ditch and in the river, as the president kept saying, local reporters, as Columbia Journalism Review has documented, local reporters in all of those places that the president cited actually went out and did the reporting and found out that in New Jersey, in Atlanta, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, these places where the president claimed there was a massive voter fraud and ballots thrown away with his name on it, the local reporters found this wasn't true. They reported accurately. So credit to this, again, on-the-ground reporting for holding this up to be true, and credit to the networks themselves for articulating what was and wasn't true actually on election night, even when it required them to take a shot at the president. Is that fair? That was evident on every station that I flipped to. I do think, however, that historical reference is very important. And what I mean by that is, and this may go to the question of partisanship on the part of the press, when John F. Kennedy won, because in the middle of the night enough votes came in from Illinois to sanctify his election, there was widespread belief on many people's parts, from all sectors, some admiringly, some not, that that election was stolen. And it was stolen because old man Kennedy had the money and because the mayor boss of Illinois waited and waited and waited before they knew how many votes they needed to come in. But you didn't hear much of that in the analysis of this election. Of which part, Alan? You didn't hear much analysis of, of what? Uh, the historical reference as to what happened. In, oh, the historical. In, that's right. I did say historical because that becomes very important. And what you say and what you reference can pretty well affect what people are hearing from journalists. I didn't hear anybody talking about the Kennedy-Nixon election. It's a bit different because of COVID. And so the context that I heard was all related to how this was so different than any other U.S. election because of the danger of dying if you go to vote. And so people were using paper. That may have accounted for it. They did have historians on, on all of the cable stations talking about voting turnout. But you're right, I didn't see references to stealing in the past. That's never really been an issue in U.S. elections, despite what the president has been saying constantly. We don't have a record of voter fraud in the U.S. Yeah, and I think, Alan, you're bringing up rumors from an election 60 years ago. I don't know that that would really be useful journalism for us at this point, for us to devote a great deal of attention to the downstate returns in Illinois 60 years ago. So I don't know that I can agree with that. I don't care whether you can. I, I agree with you. It was rumors, and it was widespread rumors. And here's the president of the United States saying there's going to be fraud. Now, I don't agree that there was fraud. I think Rosemary and what she has said is correct. Nevertheless, if one is trying as a journalist to be fair in their analysis, there should be some mention that these accusations have been made before. These accusations have indeed been made before. Yep, we've heard it, and quite a lot from this president, of course. And there has been isolated pockets of voter fraud in the past. Look at Lyndon Johnson's first election to the U.S. Senate in Texas. Uh, right. Let's hear it for Duval County, and ended up giving us LBJ, ultimately. But so far, there has not been anything like the fraud that the president alleges. And we will see in weeks to come, and I'm sure there will be weeks of this, where his lawyers and certainly his rhetoric will emphasize this issue of voter fraud, which still has never been shown to be true, but it hasn't stopped him from doing it. Yes, but right of reply, um, very quickly, I want to say, I'm not arguing that there was fraud. I think, on the contrary, that the president is full of it. Nevertheless, I'm just saying this is a pretty good example of the way in which we do analysis. That's all. Yes. 
So as we wind toward the end of the program here, we need to say uh, a dozen words of good advice for journalists in the weeks ahead. Judy, can we start with you? What advice do you have for journalists covering these weeks that are coming, which will surely be tumultuous? Take a deep breath, refresh yourselves, but don't stop covering every aspect of the news. Don't stop. All right. Rosemary, any thoughts? This is not original. I want to steal from Drew Sullivan, who is the head of an organization that investigates corrupt regimes abroad and organized crime. And his advice is do not look at the small picture. The, the coming analysis is not needed about whether Latinos are switching sides or whether African Americans are reliable Democratic voters anymore. That's the small stuff. Things we should be looking at is whether democracy, which we keep saying not hyperbolically is under attack, is it being defended? Are people who have done corruption being brought to trial? If it's a Biden administration, for example, is Barr and Price and other people who we know committed crimes, are they going to be facing legal judgment? The dispute between Congress and the president as he, the new president, if it is Biden, as he tries to roll back. And will we see reforms introduced into Congress to stop things like weird counting of ballots? Why isn't it the same everywhere? Will we see any of that? That's what we should be keeping our eye on, the systemic idea of strengthening democracy from the weaknesses that this election brought up. All right. And Alan, final word to you. What advice would you have? What charge would you have for journalists in the weeks ahead? First of all, I think journalists have been doing a pretty good job. So I would say keep doing what you're doing. But I also think it's very important not to get imprisoned the way it has been. So, for example, I think Mitch McConnell is going to be a very different kind of guy because he's going to have to deal with a Democratic president, a Democratic Congress, and somebody should be talking about how that may change. All right. That is about all we have time for. My advice is simply to follow the first tenet of the Code of Ethics Society of Professional Journalists. Seek the truth, report it as fully as possible. Obviously, that's a difficult thing, but we have to keep our eyes on the truth, even if it is causing discomfort for our readers and listeners and viewers. That's all we have time for for the Media Project this week. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. We thank our producer, David Gustina, and we thank all of you who have joined us this week once again for the Media Project. are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance But finally the movies notwithstanding They all got tired of patches on their pants The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download Download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.